we'll pray and then we'll get started here this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that we can be together this morning. And Lord Jesus, we just ask and pray for your help um, as we talk about this subject of abortion and as we think about our role in um, speaking the truth with those around us, those in our lives, those we come into contact with, those who are considering abortion. Lord, we we just ask and pray that you would make us uh, wise, that you would make us uh, courageous and compassionate at the same time. Lord Jesus, that you would help us to know the truth and speak the truth uh, with grace and gentleness. Lord, would you bless this time as we as we talk together and study together, and we ask that it would um, just help equip us as your people to be faithful before you and, and what you place before us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was thinking that it would be good for us um, just to do a little bit of review. Um before we dive right in, the goal today is to try to um, try to talk about um, answering pro-abortion, pro-pro-choice arguments. We want to be equipped to be able to respond to those things when they come up. Uh, if you ha- if you get someone who's willing to talk to you <laughs> about those things and. But I thought it would be uh, good before we just jump into those arguments just to do a little bit of review. What's apologetics? What are we hoping to do with apologetics? What, what's, we talked about this early on in, in the year. Um, apologetics, our goal here is uh, to give a reason for the hope that we have, for what we believe and why we believe it. It's a defense, a reasoned defense of our faith what we believe and why. Um, and so then I was thinking about, well, what do we hope to do when it comes to pro-life apologetics? And here I'm thinking that our, our goals are sort of maybe threefold. One is to change minds, um, hoping that our conversations will help not only educate people but sway them uh, to a new way of thinking about this issue. Good morning, brother. Um, second, to defend life. We obviously hope that our efforts will save lives. And third is to proclaim the gospel. Um, because at the end of the day, this is the only hope for those who have had an abortion. Um, it's the only hope of forgiveness. It's the only way to deal with the guilt and the shame uh, that follows afterwards. And, and on a bigger scale, like not just the personal scale, on a bigger scale, I think this is going to be the way and the only way that we can really hope to see transformation in our our country. Um, I don't think that that means that we don't fight for or advocate for laws of equal protection, which obviously I just preached on last Sunday. I think we should do that. Um, But I think ultimately we don't put our hope in politics. We put our hope in our Savior. And we want to see him, uh, we want to see his rule advance that happens through the making of disciples. Uh, So... As we think about our nation, and I just want to encourage you, as you think about the state of things, if you're tempted to uh, grow frustrated with the way things are, um, I would want you to pray like, Lord, how can I have opportunities to reach the people around me with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Um, If we can all sort of sweep in front of our own front doors, I think that will be helpful. There's a, Landon and I were talking about this biblical principle of proximity. Um, we're, we're to care for the poor, but it's first those poor right around us, right? And so it's the same with trying to reach the lost with the gospel. Um, so I wanted to start there and, and just sort of ask a few questions. Um, oh, I'm, and I, I maybe I'm naive or just overly optimistic. I don't consider myself an optimist. I'm at all, but I really think there's hope um, when it comes to the issue of abortion. Um, I do. I think there's hope for us to sway people's minds and to change the laws and to change the way that we um, approach life in this country. Um, I know it's going to be God. It's got to be God or it's not going to happen at all. 
Um, but I have hope. I have hope because of what we saw through history when it, when it comes to the issue of slavery and and um, because God's on the throne. So I know that, that the issue of abortion can seem overwhelming, and it is, but I think it'd be good for us to remember, like, okay, we're not going to change it all by ourselves, but we can all do our bit in all the ways that God gives us opportunities to do that. So, um, yeah, go ahead. share something that kind of reinforces that? Yeah. Um, I had an opportunity to walk in the March for Life in D.C. over a couple of years. Yeah. Right about a decade ago was the first time. And one of the shirts, there are all kinds of pro-life shirts. And the one that struck me the most was, and it was by a certain demographic, and they wore the shirt that said, I survived Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade will not survive me. Mm, I love that. And I thought that was, and at the time that was kind of a, you know, most people would say that was Spike Jr. Mm-hmm. And that was clearly the prayer. I mean, forty some years in the making, and I thought, you know, that that is the hope to wear that shirt that says, "This is going. We we will prevail. Don't know when." Yeah. But in my life, statement to me was, "In my lifetime, I will see the fall of Ruby." Yeah. Amen. That's that's fantastic. And, and now we're on the other side. Yeah. And I, I think I was probably one of those, maybe, but. Um, who naively thought, like, if we could just overturn Roe, then we'll be good. And it's just not the case. I think our battle is probably greater. Or maybe we see it more for what it really was the whole time. Um, so there's still a ton of work to do. Um, so, okay. Uh, key verse here for us in this class through the year has been 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Let me just read that. Uh it starts off, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So we've talked about this. in, in this, So this is just by way of review. Um, but apologetics begins with personal faith, setting apart Christ the Lord as holy. Um, we've got to know what we believe and why. Uh, apologetics is always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. So be ready and be able to give a defense specifically for our hope. Uh, and, I and we keep coming back to this, but it helps teach us that the gospel needs to be front and center in our efforts. And then apologetics is to be done with gentleness and respect. Um, this is how we maintain a clear conscience. So this issue is highly charged. Tons of emotion goes into it. Um, and we need to be courageously speaking the truth. But we don't come at this with uh, arrogance. Or, But this applies to any apologetics issue, not just the issue of abortion. Um, we avoid arrogance. We avoid anger. Uh, we speak the truth not shying away from the truth, but we do it with gentleness and respect so that if they get upset, it's not, it's not us, right? It's the truth. That's fine if they want to be upset with the truth. We, we can be okay with that. Um, so avoiding arrogance, doing it with gentleness and respect, um, being willing to, uh, to listen to people even as we go through this. Uh, the last maybe sort of preamble thing for us is reminding ourselves of the role of the Holy Spirit in our efforts of apologetics. Um, the Holy Spirit is essential and necessary for apologetics uh, to be useful, whether that comes to evangelizing the lost or discipling believers or refuting false teaching. It's the Spirit that convicts and convinces and converts unbelievers to the truth because the Spirit is the truth, 1 John 5, 6, he convicts the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, John 16. So what, when we think about the Holy Spirit, I often think about, we tend to think of the Holy Spirit as necessary for working in the people that we're speaking to, which is true. Amen? The Holy Spirit's also necessary to be at work in us who are speaking. And the only way we're going to be able to do this with gentleness and respect is in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the only way we're going to be able to live a godly lifestyle, which sort of affirms what we're saying as true, 
gives credibility uh, is through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, yes, of course, the response of the unbeliever uh, to the things that we say to the gospel depends on the Spirit, but so do we. And I think we need that reminder because we need to be remembering to pray. Um, It's why we have a prayer team before we go out every week. It's a big part of what we're trying to do. Um, I think it's just good to get into the habit of praying before you have any serious conversation with anybody about anything. <laughs> like, like I need to talk to them. I better pray about that. <laughs> like, um, we need to have a talk, but first let's pray. You know, um, I, I'm not, it's fun to remind ourselves of that, but it's actually real. It's true, right? Um, so I think this encourages us, though, in our efforts. It encourages us to trust God. And I think it also helps us to define success for us. Um, And this goes beyond just abortion and that subject. Um, Success is faithfulness to God. The fruit's in his hands. The impact is in his hands. It's not in our hands. Um, So if we can be faithful to God in our conduct, faithful to God in our words, then we've been successful, even if the person doesn't immediately change. Um... Yeah, and so it leads us to, to prayer. Okay, why keep the gospel cent- central? Uh, because abortion is murder. It's a sin. Makes one guilty before God. Brings his wrath. The gospel is the only thing that deals with our guilt. Jesus satisfies the justice of God. Because the gospel is the message of forgiveness and reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ. The gospel is the only hope of healing from the scars left by abortion. Uh, mentally, emotionally, and because it's our primary mission and the way that Christ's rule uh, spreads. Um, so, let's turn our attention then to maybe some arguments um, and some of those answers. But before we do that, I want to spend a little bit more time maybe laying some groundwork for us. And let me just ask the, this question Um, Before we get into the specific arguments, what do you think the central or most important issue is that we need to establish? As as we think about apologetics, speaking the truth on the issue of abortion, what's the key issue? Are you asking what the key issue is for our our perspective it's really I mean at the end of the day it's central it's a central issue for both this may be like totally off of where you're going but the first thing that I think about is love for God okay um, I have to that the issue um, and the everything behind it can make me so angry, mm. um, and I find I need to keep my mouth shut <laughs> mm-hmm. so that because I, so that I don't sin. So you don't botch it. Exactly, mm-hmm. and it's not that I should stay in that state. Yeah. But primarily, I have to have things right between me and God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. That's not what I had had in mind. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking specifically in, in as it relates to like. Apologetics on the subject of abortion, what does it all come down to? It's really just one question that it comes down to. A child is made in the image of God. Yeah. Or it's not a child. Like it's either a human life, human being, human person, right? Or not. If it is, then that that changes everything. That that is the key issue. Like it comes down to what is in the womb. Like, what do we believe about that? What is true about what's in the womb? That's the central issue. Why do I start there? I start there because I want to anchor you in the fact that whenever you're thinking about speaking to someone about uh, this topic, about the subject of abortion, the majority of your work needs to be in establishing this. Like, And we'll see as we go through many of the arguments, there are underlying presuppositions that it's not a human being. 
it's not a life worthy of value, dignity, respect, etc. So that's what we want to establish. That we want to drive home that the unborn are human persons. That's the key issue. Um, that's the key issue because okay, think of it this way: if the unborn is just like your tonsils, then yeah, remove it, chuck them, no big deal. Like remove them like toenail clippings and pitch it, no big deal. But if it's a human being, if it's a human person, then there is you have no right to do that, right? So there's there's all these questions that that come at us as it relates to abortion, all these arguments for why a woman should be able to do it. But what it really boils down to is an argument for a woman to be able to kill her child, an innocent human being in the womb. That that is the clarifying issue. Like that's what we have to bring it back to again and again and again because that's what they're arguing for. So uh, that they're they have a right um, uh, to do that to kill kill their child. So both sides want to frame the debate, um, but when it comes to talking with people. We want to simplify the issue and argue for life with gentleness and respect. There's a lot of like emotional arguments, things that are made, but um, we really need to be able to establish this truth up front and keep coming back to it again and again and again. And remember we talked about Romans 1 and how people suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I really believe people know what this is and what's going on. So for us to continue to point it out enables uh, and helps, I guess, the Holy Spirit bring conviction to people's hearts and minds uh, because it's the truth, right? We know it to be true. So um, how would you argue then that what's in the womb is a life? And we can do that in sort of three ways. We can do it biblically, we can do it scientifically, and we can do it logically. We need to be able to do all three as Christians. I'm not going to spend a ton of time reviewing the arguments, the biblical arguments for why what's in the womb is a life, because I believe that most of you know those arguments. But we can take people to scriptures like Psalm 139. It talks about how God knit us together in the womb. David is speaking of himself personally. We can go to Jeremiah 1.5. We can go to Exodus 21, like we did last Sunday, talk about how God clearly sees the unborn as uh, people, persons, worthy of uh, protection under the law. We can look at scriptures where God speaks about both the unborn and the born using the same words. So, so we have a biblical argument. Then, um, I'm, and I'm sorry that we're going quickly, but um, I covered this a little bit in the sermon, so I don't want to spend tons of time here. There's also the scientific argument, um, which is to say, sci the science, <laughs> the science <laughs> is clear. Life begins at fertilization. Um, you might have noticed that I use the word fertilization uh, synonymously with conception, and I switched from conception. I used to say, used to just say life begins at conception. But the reason I've switched to fertilization is because some folks have tried to say that conception doesn't happen until it actually uh, is safely implanted in the womb or so forth. So they, they've shifted the goalpost on what conception means. And so for clarity's sake, we can use the word fertilization. Uh, so when uh, egg and sperm meet, a zygote is formed, individual human, uh, it's a new human being, genetically unique. It has its own DNA. It's not the mom. It's not the dad. It's a new person, has all the DNA that it needs to survive in the womb. I also used to spend a lot of time walking through like, well, at this age, they have uh, brainwaves, like, you know, like just over three weeks, brainwaves, just over six weeks, heartbeat, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality of it is, is that it ends up leading down, down paths that I don't think we want to go to be consistent as Christians in our worldview. In order to be consistent in our worldview, if we believe that life begins at fertilization or conception, then we want to protect life from the very beginning. We don't want to end up with laws that are unjust because we're killing humans that are three weeks old, but not afterwards. Does, does it make sense? 
um, you can go down that road with people, right? But the only real objective measure is right there at the beginning at fertilization. Um, so we, we, um, we want to understand, here's, here's a embryology textbook, uh, zygote. This cell formed by the union of an oocyte and sperm is the beginning of a new human being. That's Keith Moore. The book was written in 2003. Um, so it's nice that science is squarely on our side on this one. Um, it, it is um, a scientific fact. So to say that the baby is just part of the woman's body, like her gallbladder or something, or just some tissue, it's scientifically inaccurate. We want to be able to point that out. Um, so three crucial points about this this new organism, this new human being. Number one, it's a distinct life. It's distinct from her parents. She's, she's different than the mom. Um, the cells in DNA are unique. And obviously it's alive because dead things don't grow. <laughs> um, number two, it's a human. This is obvious because of its genetics, because of its genetic makeup. And number three, it's a whole human. It's not just part of a larger human. It's not like an eye or a stomach or a tooth. Um, that's not to say that it's fully developed. It's still in the process of developing. But from the moment of conception, that one cell has all the DNA it needs for its growth and development for her whole life. All, all that baby in the womb needs is nutrients, oxygen, and a safe place to grow. And it will develop. So it's a whole human being, a new human individual, even from the earliest stage. And then third, what does logic say? It's both scientifically inaccurate, but also illogical to say that an embryo or a fetus isn't a human simply because they're not as fully developed, say, as a toddler. Um, it'd be like saying that toddlers aren't human beings because they're not teenagers yet. Um, it doesn't matter that toddlers don't have the same mental abilities as a teenager. We don't hold that against them. Uh, and I don't know, maybe some toddlers have more mental abilities than a teenager. I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, sorry to the teenagers in the room. That's just as a cheap shot. Um, the fact that the baby can't survive on its own doesn't remove personhood either. I mean, think about, you know, we have a nine-month-old at home right now. That baby cannot survive on its own. It needs massive amounts of help from us. We have to feed it. We have to change it. We have to watch it all the time. Otherwise, it's going to choke to death on something. Like it almost did the other day. Um, she got something, and Sarah's smacking the back to get the thing out. It's freaky. Um, but does that, just because we have to watch the, our baby, baby Jenna, and care for her and feed her, does that mean she's not a human being? Does that mean we can take her life? No, of course not. That's absurd. The same is true for those before they're born as well. And then the point is here is that if it's a human, it has to be human from conception. So I mentioned this in the sermon, but didn't elaborate on this. If you just go back, like, were you a human being yesterday? Well, what about last week? What about last year? And if you just keep going back and back and back, where do you start <laughs> logically? You, you start, your first day of life is that moment you were conceived in the womb, the moment of fertilization. So there are only four differences between a preborn baby and a newborn baby. They can be uh, remembered by the acronym SLED. You may have heard this. SLED stands for size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. None of those provides a, a sufficient reason for killing the unborn. Um, and to see the failure of these arguments, we just have to ask if any of these arguments would be a good reason for killing uh, a two-year-old. Uh, the, the strategy here is called trotting out the toddler. Have you heard of this? It's called trotting out the toddler. And it's a really great way when, when like, we haven't gotten to any of the specific arguments yet, but many of them can be uh, responded to by trotting out the toddler. So applying whatever logic is being used in the argument being made to a toddler, to a two-year-old, and seeing if it works. Uh, most of the time, it does not work. Uh, so it helps us also then to be clear and to focus on the core issue when we're talking about abortion, 
Remember, the core issue is this is a human being. It's a human person. And so continuing to come back to this is essential. So size. Uh, the unborn is tiny, especially at the moment of conception, right? Uh, well, a fetus is smaller than a newborn. But the question would be, does a person's size determine whether or not they're human and have a right to live? So do bigger people have more rights than smaller people? My wife is smaller than I am. She's tiny, right? She's not even five feet tall. Um, Lord bless her, I just love her to death. Does she have less moral value as a person than I do because she's smaller than me? No, of course not. Um, trot out the toddler. Is a two-year-old less human than a teenager? Of course not. Is it okay to kill a two-year-old because they're smaller than a teenager? No, of course not. Um, same is true of the unborn. Okay, level of development. A fetus is less developed than a newborn. Does a person's level of development determine if they're human and have a right to life? Uh, do smarter people deserve more rights? Should we kill dumb people? Um, trot out the toddler. Is a two-year-old not human because it's not as developed mentally, physically, emotionally as a teenager or as an adult? No, of course not. Um, environment. Some people argue that it's not human until it's born. Um, but a person doesn't become human just by changing location, right? Like if you're human outside the womb, 10 seconds earlier when you were in the womb, Maybe it's not 10 seconds. Maybe it's like 12 hours. Uh, 12 hours earlier when you were in the womb, you're still a human being, right? We're human whether we're here sitting in this auditorium or whether we're at home or wherever we are. Location doesn't determine our humanity or our worth. And then there's degree of dependency. Um, some people argue it's not human worth protection because it's dependent on the mother for life. But we've already talked about this, right? Like the little babies, the little newborns are just as dependent. So we keep trotting out the toddler. Is it okay to kill a two-year-old because they can't survive without assistance? I mean, once the Cheerios ran out at our house, our kids would be in trouble. <laughs> um, no, of course not. So all of these things help us to clarify the issue. Um, and so we'll keep coming back to that. At the very end, um, and I don't know if we're going to get there today, but at the very end, we'll, we'll start to talk about how do we address the people who say, yeah, I know it's a human being and I don't care, right? Because uh, that's where we've sort of degenerated to. Uh, so, um, so personhood. The point here in this logical point is that it doesn't turn into a human. Something doesn't turn into a human simply by getting bigger or smarter or more capable of caring for itself. If it's a human, then it had to be a human from the beginning, from fertilization. What this means is that at every stage of development, the unborn are people, so whether it's chemical or surgical, there can be no doubt that abortion unjustly ends a human life. It's murder. Innocent. They're innocent in the sense that they've done nothing worthy of, of death. Um, so that's the central issue. If the unborn is just tissue, then cut it out and throw it away like your toenails. Uh, do whatever you want with it. But if they're people, then they have rights and they deserve protection. The reality is we know when life begins. It's true biblically, scientifically, logically. These are our little neighbors, our little unborn neighbors. And we need to love them and care for them and protect them. Um, so keep in mind this trot the toddler technique. Um, as we think about these arguments. All right, so let's get into the arguments proper. I'm impressed we got this far. Uh, so, praise the Lord. Um, number one, I want to address the elephant in the room. Uh, the elephant in the room is me. <laughs> I am a man, <laughs> not a woman. And what right does a man have to speak about this issue. I feel like that's probably a, a decent argument to address first. Uh, you have no right to speak on this subject because you're a man. Men should remain silent on abortion. Um, okay, let me open this up for discussion. How would you respond to this? Well, I don't know. I don't know exactly how to respond to it, but the part of the lie in that <clears throat> is that abortion is women's health care. <laughs> 
Mm -hmm. And it's not healthcare. Mm. What is it? It's uh, it's not healthcare. Yeah. It's it's, it's a choice. Yeah. Of convenience. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it sometimes it involves the health, but that's not the majority of the time. Yeah. So we'll come back to the. Um, there's a private decision between me and my doctor, right. and stay out of my business. But that's connected to this, right? Yes. Yeah, it's inter, inter, integrally, integrally. Integrally? Yeah, thank you. Uh, connected to this. But, but the other side is that given that it's in human life, yeah. men are, contrary to the opinion of some, <laughs> men are humans, right? We are humans. Yes. <laughs> some people would disagree. <laughs> Can you talk to Sarah afterwards and tell her I am, in fact, a human? <laughs> yes, men are human too, praise the Lord. I didn't put this in my notes, but um, it's really interesting to me. And this is many of these arguments are connected, and so I apologize that we'll probably repeat uh, ground uh, in responding to them. But that's okay because repetition helps uh, anchor us in understanding. Um, I didn't put this in my notes, but as I was preparing to preach uh, for last Sunday, thinking about the unborn as fatherless. Someone was making this argument, um, and I was like, that's an interesting thing to say. And the reason they were making the argument is because the dad has absolutely no right whatsoever to stop a woman if she chooses to have an abortion. Supposing a woman gets pregnant and the, the, the man wants the baby and the woman doesn't want the baby, he has no legal recourse whatsoever to do anything about it. None. No rights. Right? So in that sense, this, these unborn are fatherless. Right? But at the end of the day, this isn't just about the... Fatherless. Legally. They're that, not actually. No, they're not actually fatherless, but from a legal perspective. But the, the great irony is, is that if the woman chooses to keep the baby and the father doesn't want the baby, the law has the man on the hook for 18 years, right? Obligated. Now, I believe, like, that's good. Like, the yes, you should be responsible, right? Because you made this choice. But the same is true for the woman, right? We're a little bit of field here, but... Okay, let's go back to the argument. Men should keep their mouth shut on abortion. No right to speak. How would you respond to that? What would you say? Rita. It takes two to tangle. Yes, it does. There would not be a fetus were it not for a man. That's right. Yeah. Takes two to tango. What else? How else would you respond to this? I know I, I had someone say it to me last yep. May. Last May. Okay, so this is a real argument that you yeah. might get. Yeah, and depending on the person, I would respond differently. Okay. So the lady was very antagonistic. Yeah. Screaming and saying all sorts of vile things to everyone around. So if it was more conversational, I would have probably gone with a question. But like, what gives someone a right to be able to speak about something? That might be a question I would ask. But I, she said, I was talking to her and then she said that exact thing, like, you can't speak to me because you're a man. And then I said... Well, you didn't ask my pronouns, so how do you know that? <laughs> so Cheeky. <laughs> and so she was going on about all these other things, too. Yeah. So um, so I did that to show the folly of her world because she said, oh, oh, yeah, you're right. And then she <laughs> oh said that, she's like, yeah, actually, I didn't ask that. So, oh. so she said, yeah, I, uh, let, me, let me ask that. So I said, I just went back to, like, you're... And she asked me, I was like, well, so you already have showed me that your worldview has collapsed on itself right here. And I'm trying to have a conversation with you about this. And she just went back to yelling and screaming. So, um, yeah, she didn't really want to have any conversation. I tried thinking yeah. of a conversation like, for five minutes before that. So at that point, I think it was sort of casting pearls before swine, probably. Or, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, would, I don't like to have to go that route, but... Um, well, there's I, a, I'm yeah. willing to go that route too when, when I yeah. need to expose the follies on the worldview. No, that's really good, Landon. There's se several good things that you brought up. One is in all of these conversations, it's, it's nice for us to sit in this room and sort of talk about like, oh, well, when you get this argument, then you simply make these counterpoints. Um, that's not how it works in the real world, right? So 
what that means is is we have to be wise enough to adjust our strategies on the ground when recognizing who are we dealing with here, what kind of person is this, and we've talked about that early on in apologetics, but that's a good reminder for us. Um, second good thing is it, it is important for us to be able to point out inconsistencies in people's worldview for them, <laughs> right? That is a good thing. That's a good strategy. Um, and then, I don't know if you, if, if you um, intended to say it this way, but you said something like, uh, how did you say it? Like, how, what would give me the right to speak about these things, yeah. right? Uh, what gives someone the right, or yeah, what would give me the right to be able to talk about this? Thing? Yeah. Um, so one of the responses for us is to point out the fact that um, arguments are gender neutral. Like every argument that we could make as men, women also make. Like the the this is a this is what this is. When someone says this to you, it's an ad hominem attack. Ad ad hominem is Latin for against the person. So rather than attacking the position, you're attacking the person. Um, it's it's a it's a distraction. Arguments don't depend on whether or not you're a male or a female. Every argument that I would make women make. It's irrelevant who's making the argument. The issue is, let's address the argument, right? I mean, um, it's just a way to evade having this kind of conversation. Um, so that would be one approach to this, is to say, like, it doesn't matter if I'm a man or a woman, it just answer the argument. The argument is the argument. Deal with that. Forget about me. You were going to add something or, just, or say something? Just to say that it's yeah. a, uh, instead of being a, a woman's issue, it's a human issue. Yeah, yeah. That's another way to deal with this, right? Um, that's getting at the idea of, well, okay, do you have to be a child to speak about child abuse? Does that make sense? Like, like there, there are moral issues. Anyone can speak on a moral issue, right? Anybody. Um Another way to address this is uh, women don't want men to be silent on other moral issues that affect women, right? And rightly so. Like the whole Me Too movement and the sexual assault and all that stuff. It's like you, wa you don't want men to be silent there, right? If we are silent, then that, that's bad. So there's another consistency piece, right? Silence but, is violence. Silence is, is violence. The idea here is that we're pointing out the fact that an argument is an argument and deal with that, of, you know what I mean? Like, So, yeah, go ahead, Brendan. Yeah, I think connected to that, it may be helpful to point out too that they wouldn't be saying that if you were arguing for abortion. Like they wouldn't be making that argument. Mm, excellent point. They would be supportive of it. Yeah. Welcome. You're on my team. Welcome. Yeah. Here's a megaphone. <laughs> Here's a megaphone. We, we're so glad that you can speak as a man to this vital issue. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Michael, I think yeah. Go ahead. The other, I think the other thing, the way to think about the issue of it's not, it's a woman's issue is, is I think that grows out of the lie that it's my body, my choice. Yep, and we'll get there for Those sure. Those two are so intricately connected, and, and right? In their thinking, at least, and the way you respond to them is kind of connected. Yeah. Yes. Um, I agree with you, and we'll get to the whole my body, my choice, or the bodily autonomy argument in just a moment. Um, okay, let's let's do another one. Uh, there's no way we're going to get through all these today, so this is going to be a two-part, two-parter. That's okay. Uh, what about cases of rape and incest? Incest, uh, very, very common argument. Um, one of the most common arguments to keep abortion legal, even though only about one percent of rapes lead to pregnancy it's very very rare um, if that's true why like if, if it's so rare why keep using this argument because it's very emotionally powerful it's emotionally powerful argument and if you haven't been paying attention our culture is largely driven by emotion right now we are an emotionally driven people uh, so powerful. The argument goes something like this. Well, what if the girl was raped? It's not fair to force her to endure an unwanted pregnancy and then have a child that will be a constant reminder of what happened. It's only going to cause more pain. 
All right, how should we respond to this one? Do you want to make a comment? Go ahead. If I may. Yeah. Um, yes, so I did encounter that yep. in a conversation with someone. Um, and so this is uniquely personal to me, but I was able to then become emotional and talk about my wonderful cousin mm -hmm. and how my aunt was raped, brutally raped as a teenager, and my beautiful cousin, and we wouldn't have had the blessing and the beauty of that life. Almost, it wasn't a reminder of some horrible event. We celebrated her life. Mm -hmm. She was a wonderful addition to our family. Yeah, amen. Yeah, that's a great argument. And it was personal, so the individual couldn't counteract. I mean, they could. People can say anything, but they, people don't want to argue. They have a hard time arguing with someone's experience. Right. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Other thoughts on this? Child's innocent. Why punish the child for the sins of the parents? Yep, that's right. We don't do that in this country, do we? Punish the innocent instead of the mm -hmm. guilty? Is that what we should do? <laughs> no. Nope. Yeah, we shouldn't. I think that I like the idea of having both the logical and the, a story if you can. So like having those personal examples in India is really nice if, you, if we can have those. Um, so yeah, that's great. I, I, I would usually probably go the route of just going back to your central point, number one issue might, but like you said, is it a life or not? Is it so a human being or not? You can try to understand where people are coming from, express your sympathy and all that, which, which is helpful and kind. But at the end of the day, does come back to is this human being or not? Yeah. And so if you can talk to them about that point, then you, everything else will, will flow from that. And you can talk about justice for like how there should be justice. If there is indeed rape, there should be justice. And not for the not towards the innocent, but towards the guilty. So Yeah. A, yeah. A whole broader conversation. Yeah. yeah. And I think you can make that point quickly and early. So, like, the first thing on my list here is we need to be clear up front that rape is a violent, morally despicable crime. It's a horrible tragedy. It's no one is trying to deny in any way what has happened or how horrible it is or how painful it is. We can acknowledge all of that. And we can say, I believe that the attacker should be brought to justice and fully punished for their heinous crime. Like, we ought to say that. Like... To, to argue for the life of the baby is not at all to downplay what happened or to try to ignore that. We can do both at the same time, right? We have to do everything we can to help a woman heal, bring the criminal to justice. But I think we need to be clear that aborting a baby doesn't do either of those things. It doesn't help a woman heal, nor does it bring the, other, the, the perpetrator to justice. It just creates a second victim. It's not undoing the damage to the first. The baby is not the aggressor. The baby is not the one who committed the crime. They're innocent. They haven't done anything wrong. So why should we punish it? So to allow abortion for this reason would be to turn this ethical principle on its head. We don't punish the innocents for, the, for crimes they didn't commit. That's not what we do. That's not just. Um, it would also yeah. put double burden on the mother. Correct. Rape and yeah. murdering her own child. That's right. And never knowing what it could have been. Yes. This is this is a great point. So it put it puts a, a burden on the mother, right, for having now the guilt of having an abortion. That applies for all of this. Right? That argument of uh, sort of standing for life, you only care about the baby. Uh, no, that's not true at all. Um, we care profoundly and deeply for the moms. Because there are like this action is a moral action, and it carries deep, lasting, heavy, physical, emotional, spiritual, mental consequences, right? right. Uh, so it's, it's profoundly loving to tr try to help a woman not have an abortion, right? So it's a, great, it's a great point. But even after we acknowledge that it's a heinous crime, we have to ask if relieving a woman's mental and emotional pain justifies killing an innocent human being. We can agree that it, she might have painful memories when she sees the child. It's, a, it's foolish to think that that won't ever happen. 
right? Like your cousin, like, yeah, you're happy for the life of your cousin, but I'm guessing that there were probably still, that still, there were memories there, right? But the question is, does, does that then justify killing an innocent human being? That's really what it comes down to, right? Again and again, we're going to come back to this. Um, someone might say, well, but you don't understand what this woman has gone through. You're right. I don't. I never could. All I'm saying is that her pain does not justify killing another person. And we can admit that it's hard. It's a hard situation. Um, but oftentimes doing the right thing is not easy. It's very difficult to do. Um, Michael. Yeah, go ahead. We could also say to them that in many cases, neither do you. You're making an assumption. These, they, they are, and oftentimes you're making an assumption based on that's the narrative. They just stop the narrative. They don't know personally, necessarily. I mean, some may have their personal experiences, but they, they are making a statement of fact and, and uh, generalizing it to everyone. Um, what, which statement of fact? What kinds um, of fact? The, the thing that you said, now just flew my mind, but um, that you, you don't know what the mother's been through. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and assuming that, assuming that everything is negative and, you know, they take the, um, the exceptions and generalize them and make that, well, that's the broad truth. Yeah, yeah. There's always that issue. We need to be careful of that for sure. There's another side of this is to say... Um, Okay, what happens in a rape? Someone takes their body and brutally abuses and violates and commits a violent act against another person. That's exactly what we're doing with an abortion. So any, any argument against rape is simultaneously an argument against abortion. It's like, how can you condone uh, abortion but condemn rape? They're both the same type of a crime. Um, also in our country, we don't typically give victims the right to deal out the punishment to their uh, attackers. It's not a just way to go about things. Um, Scott Ray, he's a professor of, of Christian ethics and the dean of the faculty at Talbot School of Theology. Uh, he does the same thing, and I thought it was powerful. I'll mention his story now. He, his adopted sister... Um, when his sister went to Biola, she asked her dad to track down her birth mom. And when they did, they learned that her, her biological mom at 14 years old was date raped and became pregnant. So then Scott asked this, did my sister and does my sister have any less right to life because of how she was conceived? I don't know how you answer that when the science itself is clear, the unborn is still a valuable human being. He concludes the morally right thing to do is to protect that life. And then later on, he just makes a side comment, kind of like you were doing. He says, she's the most beautiful, amazing human being. And you think about this. She now has three kids of her own and future grandkids. And he you know, goes then and he starts talking about the long-term sort of domino effect that this has and what, what would be, what the impact of that would have been, right? Uh, that's a great... Uh, thing to do. I don't know that we all need to have even a personal connection, but I do think we can know those stories. There's plenty of those stories that we can connect with and say, well, what about this person's life? What about this person's life? What about, you know, they were conceived in rape, etc., etc. Um, and then this argument comes from the Human Coalition. Um, this argument demeans women. Uh, I believe women are strong enough to overcome the negative impact of rape and either raise the child or place it up for adoption. I believe they have the strength and the compassion to love the child in spite of the pain of what happened. And there are many beautiful stories of women who've chosen life after rape. It's amazing to me how a movement that is designed to elevate women often treats them like they're ignorant or weak uh, and many actually liberals, leftists, they recognize this and they'll, they'll point out like to the pro-life movement. When the pro-life movement wants to make all women victims, the liberals will be like, why are you infantilizing women? Like, I know exactly what I did. Like, I wasn't ignorant. I knew what I did. I'm happy I did it. Um, 
it's like demeaning to women when we, we make these kinds of arguments. And then we'll do one more argument and then we'll come back to a, a final, another argument here. When it comes, when it comes down to uh, rape, incest, and then also like the life of the mother arguments, those, um, those arguments end up proving too little. So we'll talk about that in a second. Come back to that in a minute. Talk about what I mean by that. Um, okay, third argument. What about the life of the mother? Another common objection. I think first we need to distinguish between the health of the mother and the life of the mother. Because health, the health, quote, I'm going to put health in, in quotes, <laughs> scare quotes. The health exception has been so broadly defined, it, it can include pretty much anything, um, which is ridiculous. It's, it becomes meaningless at that point. Uh, but what about talking about cases where the mother's actual physical life is truly in danger, and if nothing's done, the mother and the baby could die? How do we respond to that? Some people say, well, if all life is sacred, how can you justify killing the unborn to save the life of the mother? Isn't it a contradiction to permit abortion in this case? The answer is no. There's reasons for that. Here's why. First, uh, whenever the mom's life is in danger, the goal of the doctors and the medical staff is to save both lives if possible. Their goal isn't to kill anybody. <laughs> Their goal is to save both lives. And it's important to stress that every effort should be made to save both lives. But if this is not possible, then the doctor has to choose the course of action that best upholds the sanctity of life. In other words, he has to save whoever he's able to save. So most procedures to save the mother's life happen long before the baby is capable of living outside of the womb. They're not viable. Most of them are due to ectopic pregnancies. That's where the uh, fertilized egg implants somewhere outside of the uterus, usually in the fallopian tubes. Um, but at this point, our technology has not gotten to the point where we can save the baby in that case. We can't do it yet. So in those cases, the doctor has to save the mother's life because he cannot save the baby's life. If he doesn't remove the baby, then both the mom and the child will die. But we don't want to conflate, we don't want to confuse ectopic pregnancy with abortion because they're not the same thing. They're different procedures and they're ethically different. We're approaching them in completely different ways. The intent, the motivation is really important. The, the doctor's intention is not to kill the baby. It's to save the mother. But because saving both is impossible and all things being equal, it's better that one person should live rather than let both people die. So this situation, it's morally justified because the intent is to save life, the mothers. Even though the death of the unborn, we recognize it's unfortunate, it's tragic, but it's an anticipated consequence that cannot be avoided in this case unless you're willing to let both people die. So if you can't save them both, it's a higher good that one should live rather than two die. The point here is that that decision is being driven by the application of pro-life principles. It's consistent with pro-life principles. So in short, every effort should be made to save both, but if you can't save both, it's consistent with pro-life principles that you save the life that you can. In the case, um, those are difficult and heartbreaking decisions, right? But we want to mention two things. First, one, um, once the baby is viable, there really is no reason to abort, abort for the life of the mother. Like if, if you can just have a C-section and we can take the baby and the mom is fine. The, you know, there is no real reason for this. It's also really rare that this happens. That, that, that a, it does happen, perhaps, where a, a mother's life is actually in danger. Um, but usually both can be saved once the baby is, is viable. And then, again, there was an exception for the life of the mom that existed before Roe. It's still in place. Um, now, before we go on to any other ones, I, I'll make another note then, like, I'm, like I said before. Both of these two arguments, they prove too little at the end of the day. The argument for abortion because of rape or because of the life of the mom, they prove too little. Here's what I mean. Usually po people point to the hard cases to justify abortion for any reason at any time. But that doesn't work. It would only, if, if you're going to go down that 
road. It only works to justify abortion in the case of sexual assault or for the life of the mom. So even if we granted their argument, which I don't, we don't do that because we're talking about a human being, a human life, but even if we granted the argument that abortion should be legal for rape or for the life of the mother, it doesn't support a woman getting abortion for convenience, for social or economic reasons. So we could ask, okay, I'll grant your argument just for the sake of discussion. Would you then support legal restriction of abortion for any other reason, for any reason of convenience, social or economic reasons? Because those are the vast majority of abortions. And the answer is, if they say no, well then the question would be, then why did you bring up rape and, and uh, the life of the mother? Like if you're, if you're trying to argue for abortion on demand, anytime, for anyone, for any reason, then that's the case that you need to make. Don't use these emotionally charged exceptions or you know, these rare cases to try to make your argument. You're not actually arguing for what you're, what you actually say you are. Go ahead. Uh, some, I forget the court case, but some pro-life attorneys made it a, an important distinction in terms uh, in this one case between uh, they identified necessary medical procedure, procedures versus elective procedures. Yeah. Um, and that, that carried a lot of weight in, their, in, the, in the case because the elective is, you know, I want to have plastic surgery done on my nose. Yeah. Uh, whereas necessary medical pr procedures are, tr are treating something. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. That's a great way to talk about this. In the case of the ectopic pregnancy, it becomes a necessary medical procedure. But in the case of abortion, it's an elective procedure. Yeah, it's a good distinction to draw. Okay, go ahead, Rita. Um, when I was a Catholic and involved in medical and moral ethics, yeah. we were told at the onset of this Roe v. Wade that uh, since the fetus has been fertilized for 72 hours, in the case of rape or incest, if it's caught early enough, there can be a DMC. Well, within 72 hours, yeah. you're not going to do a DNC. So that's... Why not? Well, because a DNC is a dilation and curatage. That's like going that's in and... Script, yeah. Nowadays, well, I mean, maybe at that time. Nowadays, if you're within 72 hours, they're just going to give you the pill. Oh. They'll just give you a drug. But were, would that have formerly been the case? That if it's caught early enough after the rape or the incest, and the person is at, has a DMC. Is that is that going against the sanctity of the life of the Oh, like like it, is it consistent to do that in terms of like a pro-life position? Well, if there's fertilization, there's a life. No, but the theory was if they caught it within seventy-two hours, is isn't that when they say that the, the zygote is formed? If I, if I understand your question correctly, I don't know if I do, but, but let, me, let me see if I get this. Um, the idea is, okay, you had intercourse, and we don't know, the, the, act, the fact of the matter is we don't, we don't know what's happened. No, there could be Right, and so the point of either doing a DNC or taking a, like a plan B, is essentially to make the lining of the uterus inhospitable in case something does happen, it prevents implantation. This is why, like as a pharmacist, I would say that oral contraceptions, and I would argue, this is a longer conversation, that all of them are potentially abortive. So the, there's sort of two mechanisms of action for when it, when it comes to trying to prevent pregnancy. One is to prevent fertilization. Uh, to do that, we design drugs that prevent ovulation. Those are, you have to have estrogen present for that to happen. The other mechanism of action is preventing implantation. That's the purpose of progesterone. But it is also the purpose of the DNC, correct? Correct, because you're, you're preventing you know, implantation. So, so technically speaking, we don't know if a life 
formed, but if it did, you've now given it no chance to have anywhere to go, and thus you've killed it. So it's so in either case, it's killed. In either case, yes, Even it would be abortive. It's within seventy-two. Yeah. Okay. The the <laughs> the sort of if it's within seventy-two hours, the point there is we can catch it before it implants exactly. and make it impossible for it to implant. Right. Same purpose of the drug. Does that make sense? Yes. Like that's the purpose of Plan B, the morning after pill, is to quickly get this drug in your system to change the lining of your uterus so that the baby can't implant. So you pass it through your system, but it was still alive. If we're being consistent in our worldview, which is very difficult sometimes for us to do, right? It's it's like uh, we often don't think through all the implications of what we're doing. Um, IVF is another problem, a massive problem, um, which, you know, I talked about that when we were going through the Ten Commandments. Um, so, yeah, we've got five minutes. I, I, maybe we can do one more. We can do one more. I've got 11 on my list and we're on number four. <laughs> so... Um, we'll we'll come back to this again next week, and we'll uh, we'll tackle the rest of these. Let me see how much I have left. Yeah, why don't we why don't we call it for today, and we'll come back and we'll do four through arguments four through eleven next time. Do you have any thoughts, questions that you want to ask this morning based on what we've talked about? Two. Go ahead. Um. I never really understood the concept of DNA. Is the DNA the minute the the the, the uh, egg is fertilized? Is that the instant that the DNA comes into place? It's yeah. The short answer is yes, but it's technically not instantaneous. If that makes any sense. Um, it's close enough. Um, yeah, I mean, essentially what you have happening is egg and sperm, they both have half of what you need. You need them both. Yeah. Right? So, so like when a woman has her cycle or whatever, she's not having an abortion. It's not a life, <laughs> you know? Um, it takes the combination of the two to create life. So, what's the second question? Well, let's, let's move on. I just, uh... Okay. Catch it later. Go ahead. Uh, do any of the arguments 4 through 11 have to do with of, I don't care if it's a life or not? Yeah. That's, that's what I've had to deal with the most. Like, people know, like, people recognize that it's a life and they don't care. Yeah. The last one. We'll talk about that next week. Yep. It's a toughie. It reminds us, I'll just say now, like, I think it reminds us of, um, you remember maybe you don't remember I think probably the us older folks <laughs> remember the phrase safe legal and rare remember that phrase have you heard that you you college students have you heard initially the the pro-choice side their slogan was abortion should be safe legal and rare they don't say that anymore we've moved from but, okay, so why would you say safe, legal, and rare? First of all, safe for who? <laughs> it's never safe for the baby. They mean safe for the mother. Legal, let her do it, and rare. But why in the world would they say rare? You just tipped your cards. You tipped your cards that this is, you know what you're doing. This is life. This is a human. Otherwise, why should it be rare? But we've moved from safe, legal, and rare to shout your abortion. Yes. Do you see how we've the the we've degenerated <laughs> in this in this cause in this issue? Um, now we're in a place where people. It's very hard. This is why I'm in the camp of most women know what they're doing. With ultrasound technology, with the state of education, we're no longer in a situation where women are 
easily convinced that this is just a clump of cells. People know what it is, they know what they're doing, and they don't care. It's a completely different situation from when we first started this road. It points us out again to the hardness of heart, the, the giving over of God, uh, right? Giving us over to our sin and the need, the desperate need for the work of the Holy Spirit to change hearts Amen. and change minds. It points us back to the need for Christ, the need for the gospel. I mean, at the end of the day, we're not going to win this with brilliant arguments. It's not going to be how it happens. Um, but it, we've, got, we've come to a very dark place when we say, yeah, I know it's a person and I'm willing to kill it. But we are there. But we are there. We are there. And we've been there for a while. And I, I think that the pro-life movement needs to catch up and recognize that fact and make some adjustments in how we fight this. We need to, we need to hit it head on in that, in that respect. We, we need to stop calling all women victims. I recognize some women are victims, but most know exactly what they're doing. And we need to address that. We need to hit that head on. So we can talk about that more next time. Go ahead, Randy. Yeah. On that subject, there's yeah. a website gives a lot of face-to-face testimony or interactions, I should say, yeah. to show that they're not victims. It's called not-a-victim. Uh, her name's Christine Hunsley, I believe. And Put out by a, a woman. Yes. Okay. That works at a clinic. Okay. I'll check it out. Not a victim. Okay. Well, let's pray and uh, we'll pick this up again next week. Lord Jesus, the end of our conversation today reminds us of our desperate need of you in all of this, Lord. It reminds us that sin blinds us, that the devil blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ. And God, we just desperately need your help. We are not sufficient in ourselves. God, we are not adequate to the task. So Lord God, we ask and pray that you would work. We pray and ask God that you would work, that you'd have mercy on our nation, that you would change minds, change hearts. God, that you would bring abortion to an end. Lord, we want to see it in our day, just like those t-shirts from 10 years ago. Uh, hopefully looked forward to the overturning of Roe. God, we need t-shirts that hopefully look forward to the end, the complete abolition of abortion. God, would you give us that hope, that mindset? Lord, help us to trust you in all of this. Lord, help us to be winsome. Help us to be compassionate, even as we're courageous. Even as we are courageous in speaking the truth, Lord, help us to do it in love. Lord, ultimately, this all rests on you. And Lord, again, we, we don't want to just see lives saved. We want to see souls saved. Lord, would you help us to, to reach to those right around us, uh, to speak to those around us? And Lord, would you give us endurance in this cause? Give us perseverance. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.